The river flows rapidly down the mountain, and then all of a sudden, it gets blocked with big boulders and a lot of trees. The water can't go any farther, even though it has tremendous force and forward energy. It just gets blocked there. That's what happens to us, too. We get blocked like that. The morning is still young. I arrived at the coffee shop around 8, 8.15. It's going to be a hot day, closing in on 110. I can't remember if this place has air conditioning. Of course I remember that their prices are good and that their coffee is fair. As I step inside, I'm greeted with the immediate information that they do have AC. Even this early, the difference between outdoors and indoors is evident. I'm also greeted with a two-pronged line. One, from counter to door, where the tape-made arrows on the floor indicate where everyone is supposed to line up. The other, a spillover from that line. About eight or ten more people who didn't get the arrow memo, uncaffeinated, on a workday morning, waiting to merge. The patio has seating aplenty, but the day will be hot, and I want the AC and the stronger Wi-Fi that comes from sitting inside. There are four tables to choose from. Three already taken. I forego standing in the line and instead snag the last available table, setting up my computer, my noise-canceling headphones, my water bottle, my inspirational reading for the day. As time passes, I realize that each time the line dies down to a manageable length, a new wave of breakfast burrito and scone-ordering coffee drinkers arrive. I will, if I want a drink, have to stand in line. I wait and I wait. I bide my time and feign productivity. I write a paragraph, think better of it, erase it, and write another, only to do the same. Then I see my opening. One couple ordering, no one behind them. I leap from my seat, become a little self-conscious in my haste, and strive for casual as I stride towards the back of the perfectly short queue. Despite the air conditioning and the early hour, the man at the register has beads of perspiration dripping from beneath his ball cap. Cream of strawberry pink, matching shirt. I make a comment about the rush, which he waves off dismissively. In that moment, he knows something I don't. Another rush is coming, and to dally in the obvious with me, could put his restroom break in jeopardy. I get the message loud and clear and order my drink. Two shots of espresso over a full cup of ice with a splash of water. Is this not an iced Americano, I see him think, as he calls over his shoulder with my needless specifications? But I know that it isn't. Too much water and not enough ice yields a drink too weak for my tolerant taste buds. That, and while a two-shot hot Americano is two dollars, a two-shot iced Americano is two fifty. Ordering it this way puts me right in the middle at two twenty-five. A little aside, no matter how I order, my trips to this shop after tip always come to $3 even. But as it is with so many things in my life, it's the principle of the matter which keeps me hyper-focused on inconsequential trivialities. (laughs) 
My order complete, I head to the restroom. When I emerge, the rush has returned, and I silently congratulate myself on taking such timely ordering action. I check the counter and find my drink. Back at my obviously coveted table, I take my first sip. As I said before about the coffee, it's just fair. Honestly, it could use a little more water. I remove lid and straw, and from my own 40-ounce stash of eternally cold hydroflasked water, I add an additional splash as I watch the line swell to even longer than when I'd first arrived. As I replace straw and lid, the plastic cup bends slightly under the pressure of the resealing lid. I hear a crack, but the bustle is enough that I don't know where it comes from. In an instant, my headphones and computer, laptop case, sunglasses, keys, wallet, and inspirational reading are all covered in coffee and I still don't understand what has happened. In that moment, I thought somehow some had spilled from the top. Even if I wanted napkins, the throng is too dense to make my way to the counter where they are presumably kept. I head to the bathroom for paper towels. I eventually make four trips, as every time I mop up, wipe down, and throw away the sog, I return to more mess. Only then do I realize that there is a hairline fracture down the entire side of the cup. Every time I move the cup to wipe underneath it, the cup bends slightly, separating the two sides of plastic, thus releasing more liquid. Upon having this earth-shattering realization, quick on my feet, I see two viable options. Option one, suck down the remaining half of the drink in a single gulp likely resulting in a brain freeze or at the very least a stomach ache, or, option two, fight through the crowd, demand the attention of an overworked barista, and explain my situation. Pre-coffee cup disaster, my plan had been to nurse the drink over the next two hours, not to drink a half-spilled iced espresso in a single gulp. With a bathroom-provided paper towel cradled under my drink, I knifed through the lobby bypass my matching pink register man, and catch the eye of a barista working the drive through Hi, I say, all understanding-like. This cup cracked down the side. I hold the cup with paper towel out to her to show her the damage and lack of remaining beverage. I anticipate that she will take it from me, offer her sympathies, and, after a quick refresher on my specifications, make for me a substitute beverage. Instead, she tells me rather flippantly that she has no idea why that happens with those cups. Then, she takes another one of those cups, takes my broken beverage, and puts it inside. I watch as the liquid leaks into the bottom of, in essence, what is a transparent saucer of a second cup. Her attention back to her previously exhaustive workload, I stand for a moment, and, unsure, I return to my table. I have absolutely no intention of drinking this. It doesn't even seem sanitary, let alone appetizing. My plan, I think, as I continue to get absolutely nothing written, is to wait, patiently, until the crowd dies down, approach the counter for a third and final time, and come hell or high water, get the drink I came and paid for. I even go so far as to push the leaking beverage to the far edge of the table out of sight, out of mind.
After another 40 minutes of non-stop lineage, I begin to cave. These poor employees, I tell myself, such a demanding job. On their feet all the time, low-paying, thankless. I have begun rationalizing drinking that slop. Another 20 minutes, without even a slight let-up in the line or a decent word written, I give in. The drink is gone in two sips and is utterly dissatisfying. The river flows rapidly down the mountain, and then all of a sudden it gets blocked with big boulders and a lot of trees. The water can't go any further, even though it has tremendous force and forward energy. It just gets blocked there. That's what happens with us too. We get blocked like that.
Renunciation When people take refuge in the formal ceremony of becoming a Buddhist, they receive a name that indicates their main path, how they should work, their main vehicle. I've noticed that when people get the name Renunciation, they hate it. It makes them feel terrible. They feel as if someone gave them the name Torture Chamber, or perhaps Torture Chamber of Enlightenment. People usually don't like the name Discipline either, but so much depends on how you look at these things. Renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught it has to do with letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. It's probably good to think of the ground of renunciation as being our good old selves, our basic decency and sense of humor. In Buddhist teachings and in the Shambhala teachings, as well as in the teachings of many other contemplative or mystical traditions, the basic view is that people are fundamentally good and healthy. It's as if everyone who has ever been born has the same birthright, which is enormous potential of warm heart and clear mind. The ground of renunciation is realizing that we already have exactly what we need, that what we have already is good. Every moment of time has enormous energy in it, and we could connect with that. I was recently in a doctor's office that had a poster on the wall of an old Native American woman walking along a road, holding the hand of a little child. The caption read, The seasons come and go. Summer follows spring, and fall follows summer, and winter follows fall. And human beings are born and mature, have their middle age, begin to grow older and die, and everything has its cycles. Day follows night, night follows day. It is good to be a part of all this. When you begin to have that kind of trust in basic creativity and directness and fullness, in the alive quality of yourself and your world, then you can begin to understand renunciation. Trungpa Rinpoche once said, Renunciation is realizing that nostalgia for samsara is full of shit. Samsara is the vicious cycle of existence, the round of birth and death and rebirth, which arises out of ignorance and is characterized by suffering. In ordinary reality, the vicious cycle of frustration and suffering is generated as the result of karma. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. When we sit in meditation, we feel our breath as it goes out, and we have some sense of willingness just to be open to the present moment. Then our mind wanders off into all kinds of stories and fabrications and manufactured realities, and we say to ourselves, it's thinking. We say that with a lot of gentleness and a lot of precision. Every time we are willing to let the storyline go, and every time we are willing to let go at the end of the outbreath, that's fundamentally renunciation. Learning how to let go of holding on and holding back. The river flows rapidly down the mountain, and then, all of a sudden, it gets blocked with big boulders and a lot of trees. The water can't go any farther. 
even though it has tremendous force and forward energy. It just gets blocked there. That's what happens with us too. We get blocked like that. Letting go at the end of the out-breath, letting the thoughts go, is like moving one of those boulders away so that the water can keep flowing, so that our energy and our life force can keep evolving and going forward. We don't, out of fear of the unknown, have to put up these blocks, these dams, that basically say no to life and to feeling life. So, renunciation is seeing clearly how we hold back, how we pull away, how we shut down, how we close off, and then learning how to open. It's about saying yes to whatever is put on your plate, whatever knocks on your door, whatever calls you up on the telephone. How we actually do that has to do with coming up against our edge, which is actually the moment when we learn what renunciation means. There is a story about a group of people climbing to the top of a mountain. It turns out it's pretty steep, and as soon as they get up to a certain height, a couple of people look down and see how far it is, and they completely freeze. They had to come up against their edge, and they couldn't go beyond it. The fear was so great that they couldn't move. Other people tripped on ahead, laughing and talking, but as the climb got steeper and more scary, more people began to get scared and freeze. All the way up this mountain, there were places where people met their edge and just froze and couldn't go any farther. The people who made it to the top looked out and were very happy to have made it to the top. The moral of the story is that it really doesn't make any difference where you meet your edge. Just meeting it is the point. Life is a whole journey of meeting your edge again and again. That's where you're challenged. That's where, if you're a person who wants to live, you start to ask yourself questions like, now why am I so scared? What is it that I don't want to see? Why can't I go any further than this? The people who got to the top were not the heroes of the day. It's just that they weren't afraid of heights. They are going to meet their edge somewhere else. The ones who froze at the bottom were not the losers. They simply stopped first, and so their lesson came earlier than the others. However, sooner or later, everybody meets his or her edge. When we meditate, we're creating a situation in which there's a lot of space. That sounds good, but it can actually be unnerving, because when there's a lot of space, you can see very clearly. You've removed your veils, your shields, your armor, your dark glasses, your earplugs, your layers and layers of mittens, your heavy boots. Finally, you're standing, touching the earth, feeling the sun on your body, feeling its brightness, hearing all the noises without anything to dull the sound. You take off your nose plug, and maybe you're going to smell the lovely fresh air, and maybe you're in the middle of a garbage dump or a cesspool. Since meditation has this quality of bringing you very close to yourself and your experience, you tend to come up against your edge faster. It's not an edge that wasn't there before, but because things are so simplified and clear, you see it, and you see it vividly and clearly. How do we renounce? How do we work with this tendency to block and to freeze and to refuse to take another step towards the unknown? If our edge is like a huge stone wall with a door in it, how do we learn to open that door and step through it again 
and again, so that life becomes a process of growing up, becoming more and more fearless and flexible, more and more able to play like a raven in the wind. The wilder the weather is, the more the ravens love it. They have the time of their lives in the winter when the wind gets much stronger and there's lots of ice and snow. They challenge the wind. They get up on top of the trees and they hold on with their claws and they grab on with their beaks as well. At some point, they just let go into the wind and let it blow them away. Then they play on it. They float on it. After a while, they'll go back to the tree and start over. It's a game. Once, I saw them in an incredible hurricane velocity wind, grabbing each other's feet and dropping and then letting go and flying out. It was like a circus act. The animals and the plants here on Cape Breton are hardy and fearless and playful and joyful. The elements have strengthened them. In order to exist here, they've had to develop a zest for challenge and for life. As you can see, it adds up to tremendous beauty and inspiration and uplifted feeling. The same goes for us. If we understand renunciation properly, we will also serve as inspiration for other people because of our hero quality, our warrior quality, the fact that each of us meets our challenges all the time. When somebody works with hardship in an open-hearted, humorous way, like a warrior, when somebody cultivates his or her bravery, everyone responds because we know we can do that too. We know that this person wasn't born perfect, but was inspired to cultivate warriorship and a gentle heart and clarity. Wherever you realize you have met your edge, you're scared and you're frozen and you're blocked, you're able to recognize it because you're open enough to see what's happening. It's already a sign of your aliveness and the fact that you've shed a lot that you can see so clearly and so vividly. Rather than think you have made a mistake, you can acknowledge the present moment and its teaching, or so we are instructed. You can hear the message, which is simply that you're saying no. The instruction isn't then to smash ahead and karate chop the whole thing. The instruction is to soften, to connect with your heart, and engender a basic attitude of generosity and compassion towards yourself, the archetypal coward. The journey of awakening, the classical journey of the mythical hero or heroine, is one of continually coming up against big challenges and then learning how to soften and open. In other words, the paralyzed quality seems to be hardening and refusing, and the letting go, or the renunciation of that attitude, is simply feeling the whole thing in your heart, letting it touch your heart. You soften and feel compassion for your predicament and for the whole human condition. You soften so that you can actually sit there with those troubled feelings and let them soften you more. The whole journey of renunciation, or starting to say yes to life, is first of all realizing that you've come up against your edge, that everything in you is saying no, and then at that point, softening. This is yet another opportunity to develop loving kindness for yourself, which results in playfulness, learning to play like a raven in the wind.